to Unity Presbyterian Church Online. This week in worship, Pastor David continues the Walking in Their Shoes series as he takes a look at the prophet Jose. Let's listen. In the 14th century, St. Julian of Norwich had a vision of God, and God showed her something specific in that vision. Do you know what it was? It was a hazelnut. And we've got a picture of a hazelnut. These things are small, seemingly insignificant. And so you may be wondering the same thing that Julian was wondering. Why, in this vision from God, is God showing me a hazelnut? What's the importance of that? And so she asked God, God, why are you showing me a hazelnut? And God says that hazelnut will last eternally. She says, really, this? This little nut, almost like an acorn, that's going to last eternally? God, what do you mean by that? And God replied, because it was created by my love, and everything that's created by my love will last eternally. And so she looks at this and and, and was thinking to herself, okay, this hazelnut is really representative of everything that God has made, because everything found its source, its beginning in God's love. And not only that, but everything continues to be sustained because of God's love. And so as a uh, kind of conclusion, she wrote down this experience, uh, which you can still read today, and she wrote down her thoughts on that, and here's what she said. She says, in this little thing, meaning this little hazelnut, I saw three properties. The first is that God made it. The second is that God loves it. And the third, that God keeps it. This is an important principle to keep in mind as we are thinking about walking in other people's shoes, is that everybody has their source in the love of God. Everybody, every person that you've ever met before has their beginning within the love of God. And not only that, but God continues to sustain us with every breath that we take simply because of God's love. And that includes that person you don't get along with. That includes the person that you don't see eye to eye with. That person has found their source in God's love as well. And, you know, there's a There's another really interesting theologian, Richard Rohr, and he says, do you know what you should do with those people? Those people that you have a hard time loving, do you know what your response should be for them? He says, well, don't start by trying to love them. No, don't don't start actually trying to love anyone. He says, start by loving rocks. And you think, what? Loving rocks? Yeah, start there. Start by loving rocks and practice that. And then love trees. And once you're really good at loving rocks and loving trees, then move your way up to animals. Yeah, then then love your dog or your cat. And when you're really good at loving all of those things, then maybe try to love that person that's hard to love. What Richard Rohr is saying is that in love, sometimes you have to work your way up to it, where you have that person in your mind and you think, I can't possibly love them. They're so different from me. They get under my skin every conversation I have with them. And Richard Rohr would say, well, that's true. 
but can you love your pet? And you go, well, yeah. I mean, I, I love my pet. And he would say, great, practice that. Practice any expression of love that you can conjure, whether that is petting your dog or even looking out the window on a beautiful spring morning and saying, I love this view. Anytime that you are struck by the emotion of love, sit with it for a minute. Capture it within you. Feel what it feels like to love. And then practice that. Allow love to immerse itself in you. It may seem silly to say, well, why do I want to start with rocks and nature and pets? But what Richard Rohr is saying is practice. Because if everything has found its source in love, then when we conjure up love in ourselves, we can practice that with anything that God has made. You're going to see this morning a really hard example of that. An example of a person who's put in a situation where this person has to love someone that if we were put in that situation, we would think, really? This person? I, I don't know if I could love very easily. Yeah, we continue for this series uh, to have the prophets be our biblical basis. And so our prophet for today is the prophet Hosea. And Hosea is put into a situation where it would be, I feel, nearly impossible to be loving. So is Hosea able to do it? Is Hosea able to be a loving person in this situation? Those are the questions that I want you to keep in mind as we read his story through the scriptures today. And as we do, maybe keep in mind that one person, or maybe a handful of people, that you also have a hard time loving and put yourself in that familiar situation. Okay, so we're going to begin in Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Here's how the story begins. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go and marry a prostitute, so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Uh, this might be one of those times where you have to read the scriptures twice, just to make sure you read it right the first time. You say, wait, 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 in this story, God wants Hosea, a prophet, to, to marry Gomer, a, a prostitute? What, what is going on here? But did you notice the reason why? Yeah, the reason why that we're told is that Hosea's relationship with Gomer, the prostitute, is going to be an example it's representative of God's relationship with the people of God, or the people of Israel, or in that verse was referred to as the land that they were in at that time. What you're seeing here, right in the beginning of Hosea, is that there's a greater story at play here. It's a story within a story. And so there's the particular individual story of Hosea, a prophet, marrying Gomer, a prostitute, but then the story within the story of what it represents is Hosea representing God, and Gomer, the unfaithful wife, representing the people of Israel 
and their unfaithfulness to God. So as we read this story, I would like you guys to put yourselves in the shoes of Gomer, because that is who represents us in this story. The times where we are unfaithful in our relationship with God. This is why the, the prophet Hosea's message has been kept for generations. Okay, let's see how this plays out. Um, Hosea and Gomer have three children together, two sons and one daughter. However, the relationship is predictably fraught with challenge because she continues, even after marriage, to be unfaithful to Hosea. Here's what she says, jumping to chapter 2 now. She said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Yes, Gomer continues to be unfaithful to Hosea. Or we might say the people of God continue to be unfaithful to God. So she sneaks away to her other lovers uh, because she believes that they can provide her with the things that she wants most in life. The things that she lists are olive oil and gold and silver, but remember, this is representative of God's story with the people of Israel, and we're included in that. And so it's like we're in a relationship with God, and we say, yes, you are my God, and I will love you always. And then we go astray, and we love other things more, or our love simply grows cold. How should God respond? How should Hosea respond? This is where the scripture goes next. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. She will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold which they used for Baal. Well, so here we're seeing the inside story of how God feels when God's people are unfaithful to God. I mean, God is saying, I'm going to put as many obstacles as I possibly can to block you from running away from me. So I'm going to put a thorn bush here so you can't go that way. I'm going to put a wall here, so you can't go that way. Please return to your creator. And eventually, she does, doesn't she? But she's not committed yet. Her heart is still not open to God. She may be physically present there, but her heart is still distant. And how many times can we relate to that? Or we say, God, okay, I'm back, I'll do the things that I know I should do as a Christian, but in our heart of hearts, we're still so distant. She does not recognize that the things she really wants in life, the new wine, the oil, the silver, the gold, all of that is actually from God. But instead, Gomer and her lovers, they take those gifts, and did you notice what they did with them? They sacrificed them to a different God. 
That's what Baal is here, B-A-A-L. Baal was a foreign god in this time period. And so they take the gifts that are from God and they instead squander them and use them and sacrifice them to a different god. Okay, so now's the time to use your imagination, okay? We're imagining walking in people's shoes. I would like you to imagine how would it feel to love someone so deeply as Hosea loves Gomer and as God loves us, only to see that love not reciprocated? How would it feel to have the gifts that you give go unacknowledged or even for others to get the credit? I mean, all of us can probably imagine how devastating that would feel to walk in those shoes. I mean, this story is is so incredible because it is actually asking us to walk in God's shoes and to imagine how God feels. I mean, can you imagine God loving us, his creation, the people of God so desperately, and how devastating it is to simply be brushed to the side or, or have other people or interests or loves pursued instead. Yes, we, if we're being honest, are a bit like Gomer. I mean, our hearts are prone to wander. But in spite of all this, the good news in this story is that God is not done pursuing. Now, remember, Gomer has returned, at least physically, with Hosea, but her heart is still kept at a distance, and so this is what God does next. He says, therefore, I'm going to woo her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There, I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Accor a door of hope. There, she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. So God is saying, I'm not done yet. I realize your heart is not here with me in this relationship, and so I'm going to woo the people of God. And did you notice the location of where that's going to happen? The wilderness. Now, this is why you know there's a story within a story, because if it was just Hosea and Gomer, why would Hosea be taking her to the wilderness? That wouldn't make much sense. But if it's God talking about the people of God, then the wilderness... Well, the wilderness holds a special bit of importance for the people of God, doesn't it? Because where were the people of God taken right when they left slavery? When they were redeemed out of Egypt, God took them into the wilderness. It was the wilderness where they then went to Mount Sinai and saw and received the Ten Commandments, were formed into the people of God. Yes, it was the wilderness where a generation of them wandered around for 40 years because their hearts permanently left God. It's a bit like trying to rekindle your marriage by going back to the location of your first date. God is reminding his people of how this story all started right there in the wilderness. And did you notice that in the wilderness— God is going to make the valley of Accor a door of hope. So the natural question is, well, what was the valley of Accor 
before it became a door of hope. Well, in Hebrew, Accor means trouble. This was the valley of trouble. You see, in the history of the Israelites, that was the place in the wilderness where a large portion of them abandoned God and said, God, we want nothing to do with you. And they got into so much trouble that subsequent generations simply called it, oh, that, that's the valley of trouble. And God is renaming it. God's saying no longer is that going to be the valley of trouble, but now it's going to be a door of hope. You see, what God's doing here is God is promising to redefine their past. What was once trouble is now going to be an opportunity for hope. Now, again, imagine you're in a relationship. If this is a relationship that has a troubled past history, and you are carrying baggage with you wherever you go, when you get a glimpse of genuine hope for the future that's not defined by your past, doesn't that make all of the difference? Yes, God does not want their relationship in the present to be defined by past trouble, by their past baggage, by the things that had not gone right in their life. God wants the relationship defined by a future hope. Hosea continues. He says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips, and no longer will their names be invoked. Okay, we need to, again, place ourselves back in more of this tribal time period of the Old Testament. Because in this time period, thousands of years ago, the husband was quite literally uh, considered the master of the house. The man was in charge of the wife, the children, of everything. But God is redefining that relationship too. Yes, not only is God redefining their past, saying we're not focused on that anymore, but we're focused on this future hope, but even in the present, God is saying no longer will you consider me master, but only husband. The change in terms changes how the entire relationship is understood. I mean, it's no longer a possessive relationship it is now a relationship that's based on mutual love and support. Now, to be sure, and theologically, God is always going to be our master. I mean, God is our God. But do you see why, why God's framing the relationship in this way? By this approach, God is saying, don't think of it like a hierarchy. But think of it as a mutual relationship that you are pursuing and that you were being pursued in. Now, in this last section, we get to the official betrothal. And I want you to pay attention to all of the wedding-oriented language that you see in this final section. He says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion, I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. 
And I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Well, so again, in this ancient time period, during a betrothal, what we might call an engagement, although it had higher stakes than our engagements today, uh, the future husband would give a series of gifts to the future wife's family. Uh, sometimes that would be called a dowry, or sometimes that was called a bride price. Well, God here, representing the culture, is also going to give gifts. But God's gifts during the betrothal are not gold or, or silver or land or livestock. These are the gifts of God. Righteousness, justice, faithfulness, love, compassion. What God's saying is that when you open up your heart to this profound relationship with your creator, these gifts are going to be the things that naturally take root within your life. When you are fully committed to God as God is to you, things like love and compassion will naturally grow. Things like faithfulness and justice will, will spring out from your life because this is what a relationship with God most looks like. So think one more time of the original setting of this story, Hosea pursuing his wayward wife despite her constant betrayals. Even in the face of this pain and hurt, Hosea is committed to showing love to one that society considers unlovable. Yes, Hosea, now representing God, is committed to always saying to the people of God, you are my people, even when they don't consider themselves God's people. And this is exactly what God does with us. Yes, we, like the ancient people of Israel, and we, we too often ignore God, we get busy in our own lives, and sometimes we even actively work against God or God's interests in the world. But what this story shows us today is that God continues to pursue so as we think of walking in other people's shoes and imagining different ways of life, the prophet Hosea encourages us to put ourselves in God's shoes. A God who is committed to pursuing us when we run away. A God who loves us when we think we are unlovable. Yes, a God who gives us hope for the future when we are stuck in the past. That is our God. Amen. If you would like more information about Unity Presbyterian Church, please visit our website at www.unitypres.org or visit us on Facebook. This is the Unity Presbyterian Church Podcast. Have a great week.